Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. You're listening to the Sassy Speculum. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Sassy Speculum. I'm your host, Adrian. I'm a fourth-year medical student in Portland, Oregon, and as always on this podcast, I do my best to break down the science of women's health into digestible chunks without medical jargon so that everybody and anybody can understand what is happening in their bodies at any given time. This current episode, I've been saying I do since the very beginning. I actually expected this to be my second episode ever, and even was planning on breaking it into several episodes. However, I think I've broken it down enough that I think we'll be able to get through it all in one episode. That being said, this episode is probably going to be dense. So what is it that I'm talking about today? We're doing hormones! I think why I've put this episode off for so long is twofold. One, I've been trying to figure out how to discuss every hormone in the body and how they all interact with each other and with health in general. And two, how the hell to make this fun and interesting. So I've decided not to do every hormone in the body because this episode would be hours long. And correct me if I'm wrong, but nobody wants to sit or even should sit and listen to a hormone lecture that is longer than an episode of Grey's Anatomy. So as I was writing this episode, did I have any clue how I was going to do this? No. But now, as I'm talking to you, I can say that it will hopefully be about the length of a Grey's Anatomy episode with commercials and maybe also with a little bit of pausing to cry because, you know, it might be a little bit more than an hour. A few housekeeping things to get out of the way. As always, I ask you to please rate and review the podcast on whatever listening platform you're using, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or anything else. This helps to spread the word out further into the world and helps other people to understand more about their bodies and the bodies around them. If you've already done this, thank you. I super appreciate all of you and the extra 10 seconds that you took out of your day to do that. And of course, the 30 minutes to an hour that you give me every other week to listen to this podcast. Obviously, I thank you for giving me that time as well. I love you all. Second, this episode is brought to you by BetterHelp, an online therapy service that helps thousands of people daily. I just started therapy last month, and I can say that I've already hit some pretty big stuff on the head, and it's profound the amount of learning that I have done about myself and and my past in just the past month. I wasn't able to say this before, but I can now say that I'm a fan of therapy, and if you ever just need somebody to talk to about literally anything, BetterHelp can match you with a therapist in under 48 hours. And if you don't like your therapist, you can switch to a new one with the click of a button and not have to pay anything at all. If you're interested in starting to heal from the inside out, give BetterHelp a try. And if you sign up at www.betterhelp.com slash sassyspeculum, you'll get 10% off of your first month of therapy. BetterHelp is already super affordable and 10% off of your first month is so accessible. Give it a shot today. That's betterhelp.com slash sassyspeculum. Yay, therapy! Last, but certainly not least in housekeeping, I am a medical student. I am not yet a doctor, give me 10 more months, and we'll be able to take this portion out. But because I am not yet a doctor, nothing that I say in this episode or any episode is medical advice, and please discuss any possible changes to your healthcare regimen with your doctor before making said changes. All right, friends, now that we've made it through all of that unimportant stuff, let's get to why you're actually here. Hormones. I know everyone has heard or admitted themselves at least once in their life that they are only acting like X, Y, and Z because they're hormonal, getting their period, they're pregnant, or you're going through menopause or whatever hormonal situation might you be getting yourself into. And while it is true that hormones have a profound effect on your mood and your actions, as discussed in previous episodes, your hormones are not something that are done to you. Your hormones are what make you, you. Without hormones, well, 
you wouldn't exist. But let's say we're in a pretend world where humans can live without hormones. You wouldn't have your personality, your body type, your skin color. You wouldn't be able to get pregnant or have a period. And while some of those things might sound like changes that you may want to make, I promise that getting rid of your hormones are not the way to go. But changing how your hormones respond to stimuli and stabilizing them, that's where the magic happens for change. Getting rid of hormones would also mean getting rid of things that keep you functioning, like blood pressure stability, your ability to concentrate urine and pee out your toxins, have muscle strength or a stable salt and water balance, and even tell your heart to beat. Hormones affect literally every single process inside of you. But what is a hormone? A hormone is a chemical messenger that sends a signal from one part of the body to another through your bloodstream, cells, and tissues. We have about 50 different hormones that are currently known in science. As I previously said, I will not be covering all 50 hormones because that would be the dullest thing ever, but I'll help to create a path in your head to understand how we get to the main hormones and what they're up to. So the hormones swim around in the bloodstream and the fluids of cells searching for what is called a target cell. Once they find that cell, they bind with protein receptors either inside or on the surface of the cell and send a message through the receptor to change the cell's activities. This message is red and then influences either gene expression or the cellular protein activity to produce a variety of quick responses and long-term effects. Hormones can either bind with lots of different receptors found on many different cells throughout the body, or they can have very specific locations where they can bind. For example, estrogens can only bind to sites in uterine, breast, and bone cells, and those same uterine, breast, and bone cells can also accept progesterone, androgens, glucocorticoids, vitamin D, and vitamin A, all of which we'll get to. And you're probably like, wait, vitamin D and A, those aren't hormones, they're vitamins. Those two vitamins are two of our fat-soluble vitamins, and they actually both act more like hormones than vitamins, actually. Vitamin D, for example, has been shown to have enhancing effects on our immune, cardiovascular, and endocrine systems, as well as on metabolic pathways, and it plays a role in depression, pain, and cancer. Both of these vitamins are the first group of substances that have been found to exhibit properties of skin hormones. This is a continually evolving research field. So there are three different structures of hormones, which decide if the hormone is water or fat-soluble, like the aforementioned vitamins A and D. This simple categorization determines if the hormone can travel in the blood alone or if it needs to be attached to a protein to swim around, if it will bind to the receptor sites inside or outside of the target cell, and also how the hormone will eventually be broken down. The three different structures are fat-soluble, and these are our steroid hormones. These come from cholesterol and include the major sex hormones, estrogen, androgens, and progesterones. Then we have water-soluble molecules, which are derived from amino acids or our protein-building blocks in our bodies. These include epinephrine and norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin, and more. These hormones are stored inside endocrine cells until they are needed. And the third structure type is also water-soluble, and it's derived from amino acids, but they consist of long chains of amino acids from several to even 200 amino acids in length. These influence metabolism, lactation, growth, and reproduction, and they include insulin, growth hormone, prolactin, and more. You can think of this separation like oil and water, and if you haven't seen oil and water together, go to your kitchen and put the two into a small glass, and you'll see that the two don't mix. They prefer to be separate and remain in their distinct layers. 
The fat-soluble hormones want to stay in the oil layer, and the water-soluble ones want to stay put in the water layer. There are certain proteins that love both oil and water, and they help to carry the hormones into the opposite fluid as necessary. As I've mentioned, hormones come from specific areas of the body, and they spread out throughout the body to their targeted tissues. The areas in your body that hormones come from are the adrenal glands, the pituitary gland, your kidneys, pancreas, ovaries, parathyroid glands, testes, the pineal gland, the hypothalamus, and the thymus. Some of those body parts you've probably heard of and other ones you may not have. Starting at the top and working our way down, let's begin with the hypothalamus. This is a small area of the brain that is about the size of an almond, and its main job is maintaining homeostasis, which means keeping the body in a state of balance and stability by adjusting to changing external conditions. It is the main link between the nervous system and the endocrine system, and it regulates things like eating, drinking, sleep, and sex. It also is in control of our autonomic nervous system, which provides our fight or flight response. It has set points for our emotions and behaviors, how much we should be eating or drinking, our temperature, and it also does our circadian rhythms. It synthesizes and releases the hormones ADH, oxytocin, GHRH, and GNRH, corticotropin-releasing hormone, also known as CRH, thyrotropin-releasing hormone, or TRH, and somatostatin from its four nuclei, and CRH and TRH are important in the next step of creating functional hormones, as you can imagine from their names. The hypothalamus is directly connected to the pituitary gland, where the majority of our hormones originate. The pituitary gland is very small, it's about one centimeter in diameter, and it's the weight of a pea. It has an anterior and a posterior portion. The posterior portion doesn't make hormones, but it stores and releases only oxytocin and antidiuretic hormone. We've all heard of oxytocin as the love hormone. In women, it also encourages uterine contraction and the milk letdown reflex in the breast. Therefore, it's very prominent during labor and delivery. For those of you who have given birth in a hospital, pitocin is often used to encourage a faster labor. Pitocin is a synthetic version of oxytocin, which is used instead of oxytocin because it's much easier to manage and control in this kind of environment. Antidiuretic hormone senses the concentration of your blood and can conserve body water in many ways, one of which is by decreasing how much pee you create if you're dehydrated. You know when you're out drinking at a bar with your friends and one of them runs off to the bathroom and then five minutes after she comes back, she says she has to pee again and that she must have broken the seal? This is because alcohol is an inhibitor of this antidiuretic hormone, so your body doesn't recognize that it's quickly becoming dehydrated through urine loss and the concentrated alcohol you're chugging, hence this is why we get hangovers. The anterior pituitary, on the other hand, makes seven different hormones, including growth hormone, thyroid-stimulating hormone, adrenocorticotropin hormone, prolactin, follicle-stimulating hormone, or FSH, luteinizing hormone, or LH, and melanocyte-stimulating hormone. These hormones are released in bursts every one to three hours, but not all at once. Imagine these hormones as pulsing to a really slow beat, and then these pituitary hormones are sent out to their target organs to either create different hormones or to cause change in a cell. The first hormone coming from the hypothalamus that we're going to chat about is CRH, which as a reminder is corticotropin-releasing hormone. This zooms down the hypothalamus into the anterior pituitary to make adrenocorticotropic hormone, which we shorten to ACTH. 
If you break down the word adrenocorticotropic, it tells you a lot actually about the hormone and what it hopes to do. Adreno, meaning the adrenals, the adrenals are its target organ, and the adrenals are a small gland that sits on top of the kidneys, and they have two parts to them, an inside part called the medulla and an outside part called the cortex, or in this case, cortico. So now we know that the adrenocortico part of the hormone is going directly to the cortex of the adrenals, and the tropic part, tropic means that it will act directly on the target cells to release more hormones. In comparison, the word trophic acts directly to stimulate growth in tissues instead. So the adrenocorticotropic hormone tells the adrenal cortex to make and secrete more hormones. Those hormones are cortisol and DHEA. The adrenal glands are able to make other hormones as well, but these are not influenced by ACTH. Cortisol is a fairly familiar hormone to people. It prepares the body to handle stress. Its short-term goal is to survive whatever short-term stress is being thrown at you. Whether you're being chased down by a bear or you're being yelled at by your boss, cortisol increases your blood sugar levels so that you have accessible energy to grab at, and it increases your blood volume and blood pressure along with holding on to water. It also increases alertness in your central nervous system. This is why you typically have vivid memories of those intense moments because it increases the alertness in the memory center of your brain, among with many other locations. Cortisol also has anti-inflammatory effects, which sounds great on the surface, but in reality, it also means lowered immune functioning. And when you're running away from a bear, you don't have time to fight disease. Obviously, in the short term, that you're hopefully getting away from that bear or that boss who's yelling at you, you don't need to fight a disease. You need to get away from them. But in the long term, if you're in a state of chronic stress, this means chronic cortisol release, which means you don't have the immune strength to fight off illness. This is why people always say that chronic stress can get you sick. This is totally true. States of chronic stress will also lead you to have elevated blood sugar levels, hello diabetes, high blood pressure and volume, hello hypertension, higher central nervous system alertness, hello irritability, anxiety, mania, psychosis, cognitive impairments, decreased libido, insomnia, depression, etc., etc., etc. So that's cortisol. The other hormone that ACTH makes is DHEA, which is a substrate for sex hormones. It is considered one of the androgens and is a precursor of 30 to 50% of total androgens in men and 75% of estrogens in premenopausal women and 100% of active estrogens after menopause. DHEA has a wide range of activities, if you will. It regulates fat breakdown, energy levels, memory, immune functions, and more. It also acts as a neurosteroid, which protects the brain. It has been nicknamed an anti-aging hormone and the fountain of youth for its neurosteroidal effects. It increases neuron growth and protection, it reduces neuroinflammation, and it increases dopamine signaling. This is our reward hormone. And it's also potentially protective in Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, dementia, ALS, and adult-onset schizophrenia. It is also positively correlated with better memory, attention, and concentration. It is also considered heart protective. It can lower blood pressure, and having low DHEA levels is correlated with atherosclerosis, which is the leading cause of death in the United States, killing 610,000 people every year. While this is an androgen, which is typically considered a male sex hormone, both males and females have androgens. 
In males with normal gonadal function, DHEA converts adrenal androstenedione into testosterone, accounting for 30% of testosterone production. In women, it also converts androstenedione to testosterone and is a major source of female androgens, but instead of stimulating male sex characteristics, it is most helpful to women in the follicular phase of their menstrual cycle, which is when the eggs in your ovaries begin developing, and then one is picked to mature completely, which will either be fertilized and become a baby, or it will be released with menses. As you can imagine, if DHEA is increased in a woman, it would lead to excess androgen secretion, which causes acne, hair growth, and increased male physical characteristics, and is associated with women who have been diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome, which we'll get to later on. So going back to adrenocorticotropic hormone, ACTH for short, because I don't think I can continue saying that a billion more times. Maybe that was my last time, I don't know. It's released in times of stress, pain, and inflammation. There's a common condition in the naturopathic medicine sphere that is called adrenal fatigue. This comes from chronic stress, as you can imagine. If your adrenals are pumping out these hormones that are supposed to be reserved for extremely stressful events all of the time, your adrenals might get pretty tuckered out. But is this actually what's happening? Adrenal fatigue is characterized by fatigue, obviously. Energy crashes, depression and anxiety, poor sleep, dizziness or lightheadedness, frequent or long infections, hair loss, a reliance on caffeine to keep you going throughout the day, joint pain, brain fog, darkened areas around your eyes, weight gain, and cravings for carbs and salt. If that sounds like it could be you, listen up, because this could be really relevant. It also could totally be something else, but that's for you to talk to your doctor about. So yes, as we've covered multiple times so far, chronic stress leads to chronic circulating cortisol. This cortisol becomes a feedback loop back up to the hypothalamus, which suppresses CRH, which then suppresses ACTH. Both of these get downregulated and therefore become much less sensitive to the cortisol that is continuously being made. The cortisol is coming and coming, but you need more and more to be able to suppress it as the feedback loop will keep it going, allowing cortisol to continue rising. So this really isn't adrenal fatigue, it's actually adrenal hyperactivity. Your adrenals aren't completely shot and tuckered out. They can produce an infinite amount of cortisol and they're going to continue doing so. Your adrenals aren't fatigued, stressed, or exhausted, and you also don't have low cortisol, which is what most people assume adrenal fatigue is because of its misnomer. It's no wonder that people assume they're running low on cortisol. Instead of adrenal fatigue or adrenal insufficiency, this should be called HPA access dysregulation. The HPA access, which you're probably like, what is this new thing being thrown in now? It's the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access. It's basically just a fancy word to explain the feedback loop that occurs between these three areas in the body. The access governs the stress response. It becomes activated and then it sets off an entire cascade of neuroendocrine signals that ultimately leads to the release of norepinephrine, cortisol, and epinephrine. This feedback loop in adrenal fatigue has been dysregulated and therefore there is nobody telling cortisol to shut up anymore or even telling cortisol when it's supposed to speak. This loss of regulation also causes the cortisol rhythm to be off track as well, producing too little cortisol in the morning or too much at night which also changes the production of other hormones within the HPA axis, such as DHEA, melatonin, and epinephrine. 
As you can see, this is not simply a problem of tired adrenal glands. It's a mismatch between our stress response system and our external environment. Some other things besides chronic stress that can cause HPA dysregulation are alcoholism, anorexia, and being postpartum, which as you can imagine, are all physical and mental stressors on the body. The HPA access also affects nearly every organ and body system, including your gut, brain, thyroid, metabolism, breakdown of nutrients and toxins, as well as your reproductive systems. If you get your cortisol tested, most people will have elevated cortisol levels. Even if you do a salivary testing kit, your free cortisol might come back low, but total cortisol production and breakdown, which is measured in urine, will often be normal or high. Even if your saliva does say your cortisol is low, this is not at all because your adrenals are tired or unable to produce it. If I haven't made this clear yet, your adrenals aren't in charge of how much cortisol is produced. That's what the nervous system and the brain are for. So how do we fix this? Well, first off, we have to remove the stressor and learn stress management techniques. And we also support the adrenal glands as well as the HPA axis as a whole to calm the entire system down. One of the basic principles of naturopathic medicine is to treat the body as a whole. If you're coming to us with all of these symptoms, we aren't just going to treat the anxiety and the depression by giving you a medication and then another medication for the insomnia and another for the hair loss. We're gonna treat you as a person and we're gonna figure out why this dysregulation is occurring and then reverse it so that we can reverse all of the symptoms by supporting the body's processes instead of trying to throw band-aids over each separate system. Imagine you're going down a river and suddenly you take a wrong turn. Traditional doctors will go downstream to clear rocks and sticks and debris out of the way to make sure that you can continue down this wrong river. Naturopaths will run upstream to figure out how and where you made that wrong turn, and then they'll bring you back to the correct river. And we do this not only with HPA access dysregulation, but with every single complaint that you bring to us. One hormone that we as naturopaths deal with every single day is thyroid-stimulating hormone. So let's move from the adrenals up to the thyroid, which lives in the front of your neck, just below your Adam's apple. It weighs about 25 grams in adults, which is equivalent to half of a Mars bar or three cherry tomatoes, apparently. It's usually a little bit larger in females than males, and it also increases in size during pregnancy. Just to make things a little bit more confusing, we also have an HPT axis, a hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis, because once again, this is a feedback loop. So going back up to the hypothalamus, which makes thyrotropin-releasing hormone, or TRH, which is also, interestingly enough, found in the pancreas, GI tract, placenta, heart, prostate, testes, and ovaries, but scientists still don't know what the heck the role of this hormone on all these tissues is. But in the thyroid, TRH travels from the hypothalamus down to the pituitary, which stimulates the release of thyroid-stimulating hormone, or TSH. TSH then binds to the thyroid, which causes the release of two thyroid hormones called T4 and T3. It mostly secretes T4, which is the inactive form of the hormone, so it can't actually do very much in the body. This T4 then goes to either the bloodstream or to the liver. What goes into the bloodstream will return back up to the hypothalamus and the pituitary to tell them that the body has enough circulating and to stop making more. Think of the pituitary gland as a thermostat and the thyroid hormones like heat. Once the heat gets to the thermostat, it will recognize that the room is warm enough and then turn off. As the room cools down or as thyroid hormones drop, 
the thermostat will turn back on, increasing TSH, and then more heat is made, aka more T4 and T3. And just to stick to this analogy a little bit more, in this case, the hypothalamus is the person adjusting the thermostat to turn on and off at different temperatures. The T4 that doesn't go into the bloodstream goes to the liver to be converted from T4 into T3, which is the active form of thyroid. Every single cell in your body depends on thyroid hormones for regulation of their metabolism. The thyroid stimulates every tissue in the body to produce protein, and it also tells the cells and tissues to increase the amount of oxygen that they're using. Some of the most vital functions the thyroid takes part in are heart rate, how fast calories are burned, skin maintenance, growth, heat production, fertility, and digestion. The thyroid is like the drummer in a band. It sets the pace for the rest of the cellular metabolic activity. If the drummer is too slow for the rest of the band, you'll get an elevated TSH because the pituitary will make all the TSH in the world, but the thyroid can't convert it to T4 and T3. This is called hypothyroidism. And it can also be confusing because hypo means less than normal, but you will have an elevated TSH on lab tests. On the other hand, if the drummer is drumming too fast for the band to keep up, you will have depleted TSH levels because the pituitary just can't keep up with how fast the thyroid is turning the TSH into T4 and T3. This is called hyperthyroidism. So when you have low TSH, your thyroid is overactive, and this is hyperthyroidism. And if you have high TSH, your thyroid is underactive, and this is hypothyroidism. It seems backwards and counterintuitive, but when you sit down and like really think about it, it does make more sense. So thinking about a thyroid or drummer that is keeping too slow of a beat for the other bandmates, you would expect every process in the body to be slowed down as well. This leads to unexplained weight gain because your metabolism has slowed down, low blood pressure and a slower pulse, depression, constipation, irregular periods, low libido, memory loss, hair loss or thinning, muscle cramping, and dry skin. You'll also be cold all the time because your thermostat isn't tuned right to the outside world. These symptoms are all correlated to hypothyroidism. If the drummer is pounding away on the drums too quickly for everyone to keep up, all the systems in your body will be ramped up as well, causing unexplained weight loss, high blood pressure, and increased pulse, anxiety, diarrhea, itchy but very smooth, warm, or moist skin, difficulty concentrating, and you'll also be hot and sweaty because once again, that thermostat is turned way up too high and you can't get it down. These are all symptoms of hyperthyroidism. With both hypo and hyperthyroidism, you'll be tired, so freaking tired, because either your system is turned way down too low and you can't get up the energy to do life, or your system is up way too high and you've burnt through all of your energy stores. Pretty sure I've beat that dead horse silly, so I'm going to hit you with some thyroid facts that relate back to women's health, since that's why we're all here, and then we'll move on. First, one in eight women will develop thyroid problems during her lifetime, especially after pregnancy or during menopause. The most common thyroid condition is hypothyroidism, which is when the drummer is beating too slow and everything is tamped down. Second, women are five to eight times more likely than men to have problems with their thyroid, Third, an estimated 20 million Americans have some form of thyroid disease, and up to 60% of those are unaware of their condition. 
meaning that 12 million people are walking around feeling like absolute crap and they have no idea that they could be very easily feeling amazing. I have a patient that I've seen a few times now. The first time she came to me, she told me that she was hypothyroid, but she didn't want to take medication to fix it. She had last tried medication eight years prior, so her thyroid had been uncontrolled for eight years. She had tons of random symptoms, like she would vomit every morning. She was chronically constipated. She had toenail fungus, abdominal pain, and was so exhausted all the time that she struggled to get out of bed most days. She was depressed and occasionally suicidal, as well as some other symptoms. We ran some labs on her, including thyroid testing, and her TSH was above 9, when it shouldn't be above 3. She still refused to take pharmaceuticals, so we gave her desiccated thyroid, which is a product made from dried and ground-up animal thyroid glands. Then I saw her back a month later, and she floored me. She was no longer throwing up every day. She was no longer constipated, no longer had abdominal pain. She could exercise and go about her day without being exhausted, and she wasn't depressed or suicidal anymore. All we had to do was give her a little bit of thyroid support, and all of her symptoms went away and her labs normalized. The transformation was amazing. The first time I saw her, she was so snarky and so rude, but after she got her thyroid under control, she was incredibly nice and is actually probably one of my favorite patients now. Pretty cool. All right, anywho's, moving on to another hormone that TRH stimulates, it's prolactin. TRH from the hypothalamus goes to the pituitary gland where prolactin is produced along with oxytocin, estrogen, and something called vasoactive intestinal peptide, which in turn stimulates milk production, breast tissue development, and actually hundreds of other bodily processes. It promotes the growth of a certain type of breast tissue called mammary alveoli, which are what makes up the mammary glands where milk production happens. It also stimulates the breast alveolar cells to create the components of milk, including lactose, casein, and fats. If all of this is going on during pregnancy, you'd think that you would also be able to lactate during pregnancy, but obviously this is not the case. This is because after you give birth, your progesterone levels will drop dramatically, and prolactin is inhibited by progesterone as they take up space on the prolactin receptors within the breast cells. Once those progesterones jump off, the prolactin can bind, stimulating milk secretion. After you give birth, your prolactin levels won't stay constantly elevated. They actually only spike with periods of nipple stimulation through the baby suckling or when the letdown reflex is triggered. Prolactin also helps to regulate our metabolism, it has immune functions, and it regulates the growth of new blood vessels and the production of blood. It increases surfactant in fetal lungs, which is needed for them to breathe, and it also increases neurogenesis, which is the creation of neurons in the brain. It has this characteristic that causes low libido because after you have a baby, your body needs to recuperate before it can have another baby, so our bodies naturally shut down our sex drive to avoid getting pregnant again. On the same train, prolactin also suppresses FSH and LH to inhibit the menstrual cycle, which is another form of protection against getting pregnant too soon. This explains why many women won't get their period while they're still breastfeeding. So speaking of FSH and LH, let's move on to those hormones. Both of these are once again stimulated for production by the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus makes gonadotropin-releasing hormone, or GnRH, and it pulses out to the pituitary gland in slow pulsations for the FSH and fast pulsations for the LH. Let's first talk about FSH. This is follicle-stimulating hormone. 
In women, it zooms through the blood to the follicular cells of the ovaries to initiate follicular growth, which increases the secretion of estradiol, one of our forms of estrogen. And in men, it zooms through the blood to the Sertoli cells of the testes, which then secretes binding proteins that work to concentrate estradiol locally to then stimulate the creation of spermies. So it essentially does the same thing in both men and women. It creates life. <laughs> no, it stimulates the growth of eggs in the ovaries and production of spermies. In women, FSH levels change throughout your menstrual cycle, rising throughout the first half of your cycle and peaking right before you ovulate, which makes sense as you're trying to give that egg all of the good stuff before it can meet a sperm. With men, though, FSH levels stay fairly steady. LH, or luteinizing hormone, goes from the pituitary gland to the ovaries to stimulate the production of estradiol, and around day 14, it also peaks and it triggers the release of the egg from the ovary, also known as ovulation. In the second half of your cycle, it causes the remnants of the follicle that the egg had popped out from to form what's called a corpus luteum, which produces progesterone, which is required to support the early stages of pregnancy if fertilization were to occur. In men, it causes the Leydig cells of the testicles to make testosterone, which is important in the production of sperm. We once again have a feedback loop with both FSH and LH. This one is called the HPG, hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. Towards the end of the menstrual cycle, when these hormones are at their lowest, the hypothalamus can sense this and it will then produce more GnRH, which, as we know now, tells the pituitary gland to make more FSH and LH to release into the bloodstream. This rise then stimulates the growth of a new follicle. Okay, I don't know about you guys, but I'm super tired of talking about the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland, so we're going to move on as much as we can to some of the biggest and most well-known hormones. Let's talk about the primary sex hormones in females. Stepping up to the plate first, we've got our estrogens, our progesterones, and our androgens. Let's start off with estrogens, because there are three of them. Did you know that? There are three different forms of estrogen that course through the body, and no matter what you do, you will mix them up, because I can never keep them straight. So unless you spend hours and hours committing them to memory, which one is which and which one does what, you'll probably forget it all. But here goes. The most biologically active form of estrogen is called estradiol, and is shortened to E2. This is the estrogen that is secreted directly from the ovary into the bloodstream, and is generated within the granulosa cells of the developing follicle. The second most biologically active form is estrone, shortened to E1. Estrone comes largely from conversion within the liver of estradiol, remember that's E2, or androstendione, which is an androgen. This conversion also happens in your fat cells and other tissues. The least active form of estrogen is estriol, or E3, this is the easiest form of estrogen to be excreted, and it's a metabolic product of estrone. So to break that down a little bit better, E2 is made in the ovaries and it circulates the body. Once it reaches the liver, it converts to both E3 or E1. E1 can either be excreted from the body through urine, or it can be converted into E3. Okay, I've been learning this for like such a long time and I've just now realized that there's a super, super easy way to remember which estrogen is which and I'm feeling a little foolish for only just now realizing it. But estrone is E1 because it has the word one in it. Estradiol is E2 because it, di means two and estriol is E3 because tri means three. 
So never mind about that part where you won't remember which one is which. Maybe it was just me and I just wasn't actually paying attention to the words. Feeling a little dull right now. Anywho's, estrogen, it has so many roles within the body. The tissues that it affects are on, obviously, the reproductive organs, but it also affects your bones, your liver, your urinary tract, your brain, your blood, and your skin. So many different systems. It increases the growth of your bone cells and it decreases bone breakdown, therefore preventing osteoporosis. This is why postmenopausal women are at higher risk of osteoporosis because they no longer have as much circulating estrogen. It also increases clotting factors in the blood and increases the binding of iron and copper. The increased clotting factors is one of the main adverse effects of hormonal birth control because it can increase the risk of getting a blood clot or a DVT. It has effects on your electrolyte balance by stimulating the formation of kidney concentrating hormones that we are not getting into today for the sake of time and sanity, and also by enhancing the linings of your urinary tract to increase the reabsorption of sodium. Estrogen is neuroprotective and it decreases depression and OCD. For the skin, it stimulates collagen and elastin production, which is what keeps your skin young and firm looking and strong. For the reproductive tract, I've talked multiple times in multiple episodes about how this is considered the growth hormone, and it makes things nice and cushy in the uterus for the egg to develop. This is true. It also helps the uterus and the fallopian tubes to grow. It increases cervical mucus secretion, and it thickens the vaginal wall linings, helping insertive sex to be painless. I've talked about this before too, but it also increases the acidity of your vagina, which provides food for the good bacteria, lactobacilli, which helps to protect against infections. And finally, it also increases breast growth and stimulates development of the duct system within the breast. As I said earlier, estradiol is made predominantly by the ovaries prior to menopause. It peaks at ovulation around days 12 to 14 and is at its lowest while you're on your period. And the levels slowly decrease as we age with the largest decrease occurring at menopause. Men also produce estradiol It comes to be through conversion of testosterone, but the levels that men produce is much lower than women. Men's estradiol is essential for the production of sperm, and in both sexes, estradiol is made in much smaller amounts by our fat tissue, brain, and walls of blood vessels. Now, this may seem a little bit left field, but give me a second to explain. Many of us have been heard that being overweight increases the risk of cancer. But just like my IUD story that I told last week, We're rarely ever told why that is, and I think that context is key in understanding these things about your body. You deserve to understand why your body habitus might be affecting your risk of cancer or other disorders. Being overweight or obese, which is defined as having a BMI over 25, it does increase the risk of being diagnosed with hormone-sensitive cancers. In women, these include breast, ovarian, uterine, and endometrial cancers, And don't worry, I'm not going to do the whole thing where doctors blame all of your symptoms on you being overweight because that's absolute bullshit. There are scientific reasons why being overweight leads to increased risk of hormone-sensitive cancers. This is because estrogen is produced in our fat cells. The more fat cells means the more estrogen in the body, and the more estrogen means a higher likelihood of estrogen-sensitive cancers to develop and grow because obviously they're sensitive to estrogen, and their receptors are being overwhelmed by the amount of estrogen that's circulating. 
They have also found that extra fat cells within the body can trigger long-term, low-grade inflammation, and chronic inflammation, no matter if it's low or high-grade, is also linked to hormone-specific cancers. The proteins that are secreted by the immune system in an inflammatory state stimulate hormone-specific cancer cells to grow, especially estrogen-receptor-positive breast cancers in postmenopausal women. On the flip side, being underweight also increases your chances of hormone-sensitive disorders, for example, osteoporosis. As I mentioned a little while ago, estrogen helps to increase bone growth and slow down bone breakdown. Once a woman reaches menopause, there is significantly less estrogen circulating through the body, so bone breakdown happens a lot faster. This is why older adults are much more likely to break bones doing seemingly innocuous activities. Being underweight and having a higher risk of bone breaking may seem counterintuitive, but being underweight means that you have lower bone mineral density and also less mechanical loading of the bones throughout your life. Meaning while you had estrogen coursing through your body, your bones had to work much less to support you. Another thing to be aware of, if you're losing weight around the menopausal transition, bone loss is accelerated during this transition, so you are much more likely to lose bone as well as the weight. Calcium, vitamin D, and bone strengthening workouts have all been proven to improve bone density during this transition. Surprisingly, the change in osteoporosis risk associated with just one unit change in BMI, which is equivalent to 5 to 8 pounds, is of greater magnitude than most other modifiable risk factors, meaning that if you're underweight, improving your BMI to just one point higher, like going from an 18 to a 19, decreases your risk of osteoporosis more than any other modifiable risk factor, which is pretty cool as that's way more easy to do than changing other things in your lifestyle. Estrogen is considered a hot topic in the menopausal transition due to its obvious declining levels already mentioned in the prospect of hormone replacement therapy, or HRT. This is a topic that I'm really looking forward to covering, and I have a lot of interesting information regarding it, but so that I don't get too far ahead of myself, I'm going to cover HRT in the menopause episode, which I'm calling Minocast. So stay tuned for the Menocast. It's on the docket. Moving right along to progesterone. Progesterone also affects many different tissues in the body, not just the reproductive organs. It also affects your metabolism, temperature regulation, bones once again, and the nervous system. In the breast, it increases the development of breast lobules and decreases milk production. This hormone is elevated during pregnancy and comes to a peak during the third trimester so that it can do just that, as well as other things. The lobules of the breast are the gland that makes the milk, so increasing the amount of these within the breast is imperative to getting the body ready for the baby to come. The elevated pregnancy levels also prevent the body from producing any additional eggs during pregnancy. This is why you won't get a period while pregnant. Also, within the reproductive organs, it decreases endometrial growth, which is the uterine lining, and it increases endometrial secretions. The secretions coming from the cervix become thicker as well, and it inhibits FSH-induced estradiol production. Within the metabolism, it increases total cholesterol and LDL and decreases the level of HDL. LDL is considered the bad cholesterol, and HDL is the good cholesterol. So you may be wondering why the body would want to increase the bad and decrease the good. Well, it's balancing the effects of estrogen, which does the complete opposite. Together, progesterone and estrogen balance cholesterol levels within the body. 
This is a further reason why checking in on possible hormonal imbalances might be useful if you're having increased cholesterol numbers on your labs. Everyone has heard the negative effects of cholesterol. Your doctor may be telling you to keep your cholesterol levels down, and lots of pharmaceutical commercials you see on TV advertise drugs that can help to reduce cholesterol that could further build plaque in your heart, increasing your risk of heart disease. Of course, cholesterol in excess does have negative effects, just like anything in excessive amounts does. But do you actually know what cholesterol is? Your body wouldn't make something that it didn't need, and you do in fact need cholesterol. Cholesterol is found in every single cell in your body, and it's essentially a building block for our cells, and it's incredibly important in the creation of these steroid hormones, like progesterone and also estrogen, testosterone, and cortisol. Without cholesterol, your body cannot make these hormones, so actually having too low of cholesterol is just as undesirable as having too high cholesterol. So, circling back to progesterone, progesterone alone appears to raise LDL cholesterol. But when combined with a higher dose of estrogen, it appears to have amazingly stabilizing effects with HDL while keeping LDL levels low. This is one of the reasons why estrogen and progesterone therapies have been used for women with high cholesterol. Another effect of progesterone is increasing the body's internal temperature. This is how many women who track their cycle based on their basal body temperature know that they're ovulating because their progesterone causes at least a 0.54 Fahrenheit increase over three consecutive days compared to the previous six consecutive days. Two other benefits of progesterone, it has a similar effect on bone that estrogen does, increasing bone growth, and it also has a positive effect on the GABA receptors in the brain, causing an anti-anxiety effect. It can also be neuroprotective to your brain. Finally, I'm going to talk about our very last hormone, testosterone. Just like how men produce and utilize estrogen, women also produce and utilize testosterone. In women, we produce it in the ovaries and in small quantities through the adrenal glands, it is an androgen, which as mentioned before, stimulates the development of male characteristics. And it is the primary physiological active androgen in women. The majority of the testosterone that is produced in the ovary is actually then converted to estradiol. This process starts out with 17-hydroxyprogesterone, which then converts to androstendione, which can either convert to testosterone or to estrone. Both testosterone and estrone can then convert to estradiol. Secretion of androgens is enhanced only by LH stimulatory effect on thecal cells within the follicles, corpus luteum, and the stroma, but it works to enhance progesterone and estradiol secretion induced by FSH, so it really does work with both LH and FSH, and therefore is also controlled by the hypothalamus and the pituitary. We really can't get away from those areas in the brain no matter how hard I try. It also plays a role in muscle and bone strength, it signals the body to make new blood cells, and it enhances libido in both men and women. Just like the other sex hormones, testosterone gradually decreases as we age, but many women don't even notice this decrease. It's not like the drastic changes from the declining estrogen and progesterone that make the menopausal change so well known. Testosterone also plays a role in breast, vaginal, and menstrual health, and it's incredibly important for female fertility, and both too much or too little can interfere with fertility. The body increases testosterone production briefly around ovulation for a libido boost during a woman's prime conception time, 
It also increases circulation to the pelvis, therefore improving the production of cervical mucus that is needed to elevator up the sperm from the vagina to the uterus, therefore improving fertility outcomes as you need that elevator into the uterus for the spermies to meet the eggies. In males, testosterone is responsible for the development of secondary sex characteristics, like the deepening of their voices, facial hair. Most females don't develop these characteristics because the testosterone and other androgens act very differently in our bodies, and they are quickly converted into estrogens. However, when women's bodies produce excessive amounts of testosterone, their bodies can't keep up with converting it into estrogen. The result of this is masculinization or virilization, and they will often develop more male secondary characteristics. This is the pathophysiology behind PCOS, or polycystic ovarian syndrome. Women who have PCOS often have increased acne and body hair growth, irregular or absent periods, weight gain, male pattern baldness or the thinning of their hair, and they often suffer from infertility. As many women, and men for that matter, age, they'll take testosterone replacement therapy to help with energy and libido, and a common side effect with elevated testosterone is enlargement of the clitoris. Because, remember, the clitoris is homologous to the penis, so with excessive testosterone, the body assumes that the clitoris needs to be larger to be able to reproduce. Unfortunately, this has been reported as incredibly uncomfortable for many women, and it doesn't decrease in size. Once it's grown, it's grown, and it ain't going back unless you get it surgically reduced. And with that, I think I finished talking about all of the hormones that I want to discuss today, but wait, there's still more that I want to cover. One of the last things that I want to touch on is hormone testing. I hear so many patients come into our clinic saying, I'm tired all the time, I think I need my hormones tested. And as I've just spent the past 49 minutes explaining, your tiredness could 100% have to do with your hormones, and it also could 100% not have to do with your hormones. And unfortunately, testing some of our hormones is incredibly pointless, and it doesn't actually tell us as doctors anything that we don't already know from your symptoms. For the most part here, I'm talking about sex and stress hormones. Hormones like thyroid are very easily measured and can be measured at any time of the month with a simple blood draw, just preferably in the morning as this is when they're at their highest. But for when we do actually want to test sex and stress hormones, there are four ways we can do this, and each different way has its own pros and cons, and not all hormone testing is covered by insurance. So before you go out there and spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on a test, Listen to this info to make sure that you know what the test will actually be able to tell you and what they can't. The four methods of testing are serum blood tests, blood spot tests, urine tests, and saliva. Number one, blood tests. Both the serum and the blood spot tests evaluate how much of a hormone and its binding proteins are in the blood. Serum testing is the gold standard in conventional care. These are easy to do with a simple blood draw and are usually insurance reimbursable. With serum, we can test the total amount of hormones, the free unbound ones, as well as the already bound hormones, and also those that are bioavailable. However, the free serum hormones isn't a direct measurement. Instead, it's a total hormone ratio. The serum testing cons is that they're usually expensive, but as I mentioned before, most are covered by insurance if there's clinical reasoning for them to be ordered, but they're also not always clinically relevant. There are large ranges and free hormone calculations have to happen, and we can often get all of that information that we need from your symptom picture and our physical exams. 
Sex hormone lab tests are usually just confirmatory, and we may even decide to treat even if the tests come back normal, because you're a human with symptoms and you're not just a number on a piece of paper. It's all context-dependent, and not all hormones can be appropriately assessed via a blood draw. For blood spot testing, this is a very minimally invasive procedure. It is a small amount of blood that is lost, you can do it from home, and it's super easy to collect, and the results are comparable to serum and saliva. If someone is supplementing with sublingual hormones, they can use blood spot testing and not have the exogenous hormones affect their results, which is great. The cons are, you, as the patient, actually have to prick your finger yourself or have a friend do it for you. We will give you a lancet, which is a small piece of plastic that has a needle hidden up in it, and when you press it to your skin and push the button, the needle pokes out and it pricks your skin. Sometimes this can be really difficult for people to perform on themselves if they aren't familiar with this. You then have to kind of milk the blood out of your finger to put it on a spot card, which can be difficult. And only a few companies are doing testing this way, and they're often not covered by insurance. Urine tests only test how much of free hormones and their metabolites that your body is able to excrete. This can be done with your first morning urine, so it can be easy to collect at home, and it allows for a sense of metabolic pathways to be seen over a 24-hour picture which can be helpful if we're trying to figure out where exactly the problem is occurring within the pathway. However, not many people want to futz with their urine, and if you're doing a 24-hour urine collection, you're going to have to be carrying around a bright orange drug with you all day that you have to collect your pee in, which is a little unsightly. Insurances rarely pay for these tests, and we don't get a sense of when these hormones are coming out in the urine, and the urine tests are also only testing the waste hormones and their metabolites. They aren't actually testing the accurate amount of hormones being used up within the body, only what you're excreting. For patients who have poor kidney or liver function, this is not a good test, as the results will be very skewed. Also, people who take diuretic medications, this form of testing is basically pointless. Urine tests are best for kids, checking in on metabolic pathways, and people with Sjogren's or coagulation or bleeding disorders. And finally, salivary tests. They only test the values of the free hormones, those that aren't bound up to anything else. These tests are also easy to do. You can easily break up your multiple samples throughout the day so you can get an accurate circadian rhythm. They're painless, as all you have to do is spit into a tube, and they're usually clinically relevant and inexpensive. The cons are that research is ahead of the clinical practice use, and they're only available through research hospitals or private companies. Sublingual hormones can contaminate the sample, and also from personal experience, it can be really hard to generate enough spit to fill the tube up, especially that first tube, which has to be done right when you wake up, before you eat anything, which eating helps with saliva production. Saliva is best for kids, especially those that are older than three, because try telling an infant when they can and can't spit. For patients who maybe live out of town, as saliva is very transport-stable, patients with kidney disorders, or those that use topical hormones, as these do not get into the saliva. For sex hormones, there are certain times in the cycle when you want to test these. For menstruating women, you want to test between days 19, 20, and 21. For fertility assessment, you want to test on day three of the cycle, and if you're perimenopausal, your doctor will probably tell you that it's not helpful or important to test your hormones as they can change day to day, and the tests are not reflective of your actual symptoms. 
We should only be testing in perimenopausal women if you aren't responding to therapy or if you are having extraordinary symptoms. Otherwise, it's baseless information and really just wasting your money. Hopefully by now you understand that your hormones are what make you you. From your mood to your poop to your bones, your hormones play a humongous role in keeping you alive and functioning. And hormones are not things to scoff at when you're sobbing on the couch on your second Pringles can watching The Notebook and wishing for snuggles. Your hormones are making you do all of those things for a real reason. And honestly, just embrace it because why the hell not? So maybe sometimes it is just your hormones and other times you maybe have a headache for an entirely non-hormonal reason. Don't blame things on your hormones. Instead, understand your hormones and understand why they're making you feel or act the way that you are and then help your body to do what it needs to do by listening to them. Here's the main point. Hormonal imbalances have lots of different symptoms and to you those symptoms may seem totally unrelated or muddled and they also may really not even be related to hormones at all. Social media these days has been purporting many claims that everyone needs hormone testing or that every symptom that you're experiencing must be related to your hormones. It's important to not lump all of your symptoms together under the umbrella of hormones and just talk to your doctor who will be able to piece together what needs to be pieced and what needs to be separate and could be related to other causes. AKA, please do not diagnose yourself with a hormone imbalance based on the things that I've told you today or what you've researched on the internet But take what I said and see if you can connect some dots, and if you can, go see a doctor, probably a naturopath. They'll be able to support you the best, and they'll explain to you what is going on. That being said, I hope that you learned a lot about your body today, and that hormones are not something that's done to you. They are you. And with that, let's recap for our sassy staples for this episode. Sassy staple number one, hormones affect literally every single process inside of you. A hormone is a chemical messenger that sends a signal from one part of the body to another through your bloodstream, cells, and tissues. Number two, most of the hormones in the body are interconnected with many different areas of the brain and organs throughout the body. If you're having an adrenal hormone imbalance, we don't necessarily know that the problem is in the adrenals. It could also be higher up in the pituitary or even the hypothalamus. It could also be a problem with all of these parts working together. Number three, I'm throwing this in here because it's such a common misconception and it needs to change to better understand how we treat it. Adrenal fatigue is not due to fatigued adrenals. It's a disruption and all of these pieces working together and just addressing the adrenals won't help you. You have to address the entire person to fix the dysregulation. Number four, hormone testing is difficult. Some hormones can be tested simply through a blood draw. Others you have to pee in a cup for 24 hours or spit in a tube all day. And unfortunately, not every hormone can be accurately tested through these measures. As I stated previously, your symptoms are the most important part in helping us to understand what is going on, not so much a lab test. I had a doctor recently who, after looking at my labs, told me that because my labs were all within normal limits, that there was nothing else that could be done to fix my symptoms and I just had to deal with them. I never saw that doctor again because that is incredibly false and incredibly lazy doctoring. And if a doctor ever says that to you, get a new doctor because you deserve better healthcare. And number five, hormones are amazing. And the way that they work with the entire body and the entire body is able to interact with individual parts is awesome. The human body never ceases to amaze me. And although it's incredibly complex, 
Taking the time to understand what's going on underneath your skin opens up so many opportunities for you. And if you've made it this far in this long ass episode, you clearly care about your health and you want to understand what your body is telling you at different points in your life. And I commend you for that. That is so amazing. That's all I have for you guys today. Thanks for listening this far. I had a lot of fun with this episode and it was a great refresher for me as well. One of my favorite things about making this podcast and doing all of the research for it is that it makes me a better doctor because I understand things on a whole different level than I did when I learned them in school. So thank you all for listening and loving the podcast and allowing me this opportunity to learn right along with you guys. I'd love to hear what you thought of this episode and others, and if it opened your eyes to something going on in your own body or that of somebody else that you love. Please never hesitate to reach out to me either on social media at Sassy Speculum or by email at sassyspeculum at gmail.com or... As always, you can send me an anonymous message on my website at www.beatingheartdoula.com slash sassyspeculum if you would prefer to remain anonymous. Please remember to rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening. I just learned that if you're listening to this on Spotify on an Android, you can't rate it yet. So hopefully Spotify is figuring itself out so that you can do that. So keep an eye out. Thank you all so much for listening. And look at that, guys. I made it in just an hour. Anyways, bye.